0: In your mad rush to snap photos and video for social media and the internet, you may be missing the point. Are the photos, videos, and blogs for internet fame, entertaining your friends and family, or should you be doing it for yourself? Photographer and motorcycle adventurer Tim Burke has some tips on getting it right with your camera, and we're not gonna be talking about aperture and lens speed. And another way to capture your life is to write it down. And we know a guy that writes in his journal every day, tracking his life no matter how exciting or mundane. How did it work out for him? Well, I'm Jim Martin. This is Adventure Rider Radio. Stay with us. we got a good one for you. BMW Motorcycles has been outfitting adventure riders since 2002. 45,000 parts and accessories available online and ready to ship to your door at maxbmw.com. And you can sign up for their e-rider newsletter too. It's free. maxbmw.com. That's maxbmw.com. Best Rest Products is home of the Cycle Pump Tire Inflator, Tire and Bead Breaker, Easy Air Tire Gauge, and other adventure motorcycle gear. Whether you're on the road or off the road, you're going to want a compact and reliable tire inflation method. The Cycle Pump runs right off your bike's electrical system and will inflate a flat tire in less than three minutes. It's the one we use here at Adventure Rider Radio, made in the USA and comes with a lifetime warranty. And Motorcycle Consumer News Magazine just chose the Cycle Pump as the MCM top pick in their recent compressor comparison. www.cyclepump.com I'm Sam Manicum, Nick Sanders, Terry Borden, Sandy Borden, Jack Borden, Graham Field, Austin Vince, Jason Spafford. Lisa Murray, David Peterson, Rachel, Ed March, Glenn Hexted. Dr. Gregory W. Fraser, Dave Barr, Michelle Lampier. Tiffany Coates, Herbert Schwartz, Brett Tartt, Zoe Cannell, Nathan Millward. Graham Hoskins, Joe, Joe.
1: Jeremy Creaker. Simon Thomas,
0: Lisa Thomas, Simon Pavey, Grant Johnson, Robert Witt, Seth Sobel, Elizabeth Martin,
1: Carol Deval. and you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio.
0: Green Chili Adventure Gear offers American-made, heavy-duty, innovative luggage systems for all types of motorcycles. Turn any dry bag into motorcycle luggage using their unique strapping system. And of course, Green Chili Adventure Gear is all tested in extreme weather and terrain to withstand the abuse of adventure riding. And that has gained them a top reputation for tough, reliable gear. www.greenchiliadv.com That's www.greenchiliadv.com the Motobreeze chain oiler is powered by wind pressure that automatically adjusts for speed. No electrical or vacuum connections. It delivers oil to your chain with a felt pad that's mounted on your swing arm, which eliminates the problems of exposed nozzles near your sprockets. Get more miles from your chain and sprockets and forget about the messy spray oil. www.motobreeze.com. That's two eyes in there. TripleW.MotoBreeze.com. www.motobreeze.com. Posting on social media is for keeping our friends and family up to date, making new friends, maybe finding our our place in the adventure motorcycling community. But what are we shooting these photos and videos for? To get our three minutes of fame on social media or for our own memories? Tim Burke, photographer and motorcycle adventurer, believes that we should be capturing photos that remind us of the wonderful places we've been before we go worrying about what's going to go viral on social media. Now, if you wanna get back to basics, photography gives you a simple glimpse into the past, frozen in time forever, to remind you many years down the road of what an adventure you had. Now, you may have dropped away from social media at that point, maybe you don't even ride anymore, but you're going to have those photographs of the special places that you've been. And just looking at those photos will bring back the memories, the sights, the sounds, the smells, the people, just like you were right there again. Now it's easy, and I think we can all attest to this, to get caught up on covering miles, getting to the next camp or the next hotel, even getting too focused, I think a lot of times nowadays, on product shots or a certain style of shot that may gain us attention on social media. But is that what we're really after? Or do we want to document our trip for ourselves?
1: My name is Tim Burke, and I am from Boston, Massachusetts. That's where I grew up, but uh, most recently I've been living in Seattle, Washington. Uh, In April, I resigned from my position as an airport operations manager at Boeing Field in Seattle, and I left to drive my motorcycle around Europe. I've been on the road since April 6th, and I'm coming up on the end of my trip. I fly back to North America uh, on September 15th.
0: Tim, welcome to Adventure Rider Radio.
1: Thank you. I'm, I'm pretty excited to talk to you, Jim.
0: This is really cool because you just said you're, you're on, you're at the last few days. You got, where are you
1: now? I'm in Dublin, Ireland right now. Okay. So you're in Dublin, Ireland,
0: and you've only got five days to go before your trip is over that you've been on for how long now?
1: Since five and a half months, I believe. Yes. And wh- whatever the math is from, uh, I landed, I touched down in London, on April 6th so it's unbelievable I've, I've covered about 30,000 miles which I've gotten good at doing the math that's that's about 45,000 kilometers I think uh, and it's it's been the most exhausting five and a half months but also the most exciting I can't believe how much has happened in that amount of time and in how fast it's gone by at the same time
0: Your photography certainly caught our eye um, that you've been posting on social media. And and that's part of what's changed in your life, isn't it? When you you start out, what were you doing for a living? What did you resign from?
1: So, I was uh, my job title, I was an airport duty manager. And it was actually the the fourth airport that I worked at. I, I grew up loving, and I still do, I love aviation airports, airplanes, helicopters. Since I was a young child, I knew that I was going to work in the aviation industry. So I had my dream job. Uh, and my job at the airport is to oversee the safety and security of the airport. Now, I'm not the TSA. Uh, I, I don't do that type of security. It's more of a, um, an incident command type of position that um, somebody in my position uh, would oversee everything that happens at the airport, um, whether that's an airplane crash or a terrorist, God forbid a terrorist attack that could happen at an airport, or it could just be routine maintenance. It could be having the maintenance crew out mowing the hundreds of acres of grass that we have. We oversee and coordinate everything at the airport. And I loved it, but I also wanted to drive my motorcycle and I couldn't for for months on end and I couldn't do both.
0: So, you, I mean, you've been into motorcycling since you were a kid, and where does the adventure motorcycling come into it?
1: So, I've, I've gone through a ton of motorcycle, ton of motorcycles, uh, dirt bikes and motorcycles, ATVs, you name it. If it has an engine, I was into it. And when I was younger, when I was a teenager, um, my friends had sport bikes, and that was fun uh, when all your friends have it. My first job out of college was working at Aspen Airport. And when I moved to Colorado, it is just a giant playground. Um, You've got Utah at your back steps, Wyoming is accessible to the north, Colorado itself you can spend a lifetime exploring. Um, I was on a Kawasaki Z1000 and spending six or seven hours a day on that was miserable. So my first touring bike, this is pretty funny. I got, um, quite a few of my friends made fun of me for it. Um, I went out and got a bike. I just wanted to find something that was more comfortable. And I found on Craigslist a 1983 Honda Goldwing. So I was, I think I was the youngest person in the state driving a Honda Goldwing, but, um, it allowed me to start touring the country. And I think I'm up to 38 States now that I've driven a motorcycle in. And, um, from, from the Goldwing, I, I got a Harley Davidson and I loved that and I drove that all through North America. And then I just got sick of getting turned around by you know, I'd hit gravel, uh, get to a dead end. Well, where where the asphalt turned to gravel was essentially a dead end for me on those bikes. So I needed something that I could keep going in these amazing places that I was being forced to turn around. So again, I jumped on Craigslist uh and I got myself uh, a BMW GS. It was pretty beat up. It was a standard GS, and that's where I fell in love with adventure riding. Nothing could stop me um, anymore. Well, relatively speaking, we all know that that the, the bikes have their limitations. But um, I, I was in the planning process for a trip to Prudhoe Bay at the Arctic Ocean, and I, I liked the idea of having a large gas tank. So I upgraded to the Adventure, which has a massive gas tank and that treated me well for a long time. And my most recent bike is a 2016 GSA. And um, I haven't looked back. I know, of course, I'm sure people can relate to me uh, that are listening, I, I seek out dirt roads, and um, it's just that the bike is unstoppable, in my opinion. For my skill level, it's unstoppable.
0: That, that's a good ad pitch there. I think they're using, they're using the same line with the BMW ad, aren't they? <laughs>
1: No. But, yeah. Well.
0: But, but well, I guess it's suitable, right? I mean, if you, if you're calling it that as well. But what what it's going to say is so a natural progression, really. I mean, you're you're sort of you're traveling and you're looking for more adventure. But you decided to go to Europe, and, and like you said, you couldn't get the time off work, so you end up having to resign your position and go out. But what's changed with you
1: over the duration of this trip?
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: a lot. I can't believe in. It sounds cliche, but I've done a lot of growing on this trip. For one, traveling alone um, has taught me a level of independence that I couldn't get riding in my comfort zones. And I'd say my comfort zones were all of North America. It's pretty easy. You're not going to be put in situations that are uncomfortable and you speak the language. Generally speaking in Canada and the United States, I never faced language barriers. Um the growing that i did is is kind of learning how to communicate with other human beings through body language and made up sign language uh so since since traveling I've, I've just i've developed a little bit more confidence in my ability to to adapt to different situations cultural situations so i think that's the biggest thing that uh that i've taken away from this trip
0: we often talk about getting out of our comfort zone describe what that means to you like give me some examples
1: an example for me would be when i when i went to morocco um there is so much whenever we're logging onto facebook or instagram or even opening up our our browser tabs and seeing what msnbc or cnn or fox news has to say about the world whether we like to admit it or not that does totally affect our opinions about the rest of the world and i was i was planning on going into morocco it's got an absolutely incredible motorcycling and i was pretty nervous i was out of my comfort zone um and by that i mean nobody spoke my language um they had a different it's a very religiously conservative country um mm-hmm. the border crossing was from my point of view um and and i'm pretty inexperienced i'll self-admittedly before this trip um pretty inexperienced with international travel so the border crossing no one spoke my language it was pretty hectic the the Europeans you know guard their side of the border uh, heavily and the Moroccans guard their side it was just intimidating and i remember taking the uh, boat my motorcycle and i were on a ferry across the strait of gibraltar and i was thinking to myself you could see africa growing on the horizon northern africa and that's what I was saying about what we read on social media. It lumps entire regions into this, in into these categories. And I was under the impression that all of North America, uh, I'm sorry, North Africa was, was pretty dangerous based on what I read in the news. And I was thinking that I should turn around. I made a big mistake. Maybe I'd just stay on the boat and go right back into Spain. And I got over there and once once you're rolling on a motorcycle, those kind of go that you're right back in your comfort zone. As long as I'm rolling on my motorcycle, and I, I don't know if that answers your question. Um, kind of forcing yourself, making educated decisions uh, to continue with your trip. That that's what it's learned me is you don't want to get yourself in a dangerous situation, but it's okay to push your boundaries a little bit with stepping out of what's what you've always considered safe and secure does that make sense
0: i think you really nailed it when you said you have that feeling that you should turn around and you've made a big mistake that's when you know you're out of your comfort zone that's when you know things are going to happen and if you have the the tenacity the perseverance to get past that feeling that's when things really change
1: it is and i learned that as soon as i was over the border Uh, i hadn't interacted with anybody yet the market's there, for one. I, you, you get into the Moroccan border. The border crossing's pretty hectic. Um, it's a lot of screaming and yelling, and people are honking their horns. And I'm taking up a line of traffic in my motorcycle while they check my insurance and my paperwork. And uh, the local who's trying to cross the border is impatient. He's honking. And I was just thinking to myself, oh, this is so stupid. What am I doing over here? But once I got through the border, uh, I go into tangier morocco And the markets are just absolutely hectic i've never seen anything like it in the united states there's donkeys in the street there's people running up to you trying to sell you stuff and um again i would that didn't make me nervous but what, what changed my opinion and i realized okay these are good people i i headed south out of tangier morocco and I saw an opening onto the beach. And I had driven on beaches before and um, just south of Astoria, Oregon. And I was like, it would be pretty cool to put that notch in my belt that I drove my, my motorcycle down a hard-packed sand beach on the African coast, the Atlantic coast. So I get out, and I'm on hard-packed sand. And I'm doing like 45 or 50 miles an hour, and I hit a spot of sun-baked sand, and the motorcycle just sunk up to the skid plate. And I struggled getting that thing to budge for about two hours. I was eventually, I stripped off like I was just so hot and overheated and the tide started to come in. And I thought for a bit, this is the end of my trip. I'm literally going to lose my motorcycle. I'm only a month in at this point. I'm, I'm going to lose my motorcycle to the ocean. And eventually I swallowed my pride. And I, I had to leave my motorcycle there, buried in the sand. And I went and I found... Some farmers and I, using this made-up sign language, I described the situation, and they walked down and helped me get my bike out to hard-packed sand. And um, the, the iPhone that I was had in my hand was probably worth more than what they make in an entire year. They had no money, um, and I offered them some um, local currency, which would be the equivalent of twenty or thirty dollars. Just as a, I mean, these people saved my entire trip. They helped me and they didn't need to. And they absolutely positively wouldn't take it. No matter how hard I tried, they explained to me in very broken English, this is our culture. This is, we help people that need help. And they sent me on my way. And that's when I knew I would not discover these amazing people if I had turned around. And stayed in my comfort zone. I pushed my comfort zone, went to Morocco, and these people helped me get my bike unstuck before the tide came in. And then just three hours later, I got a flat tire and someone pulled over on a donkey to help me. Or just to make sure that I was okay. They pulled over on a donkey that they were taking to the market. And um, that was. that's when I knew that leaving my comfort zone was uh, totally worth it.
0: And I guess it sort of tells you about your fears, doesn't it? You know, these these totally unfounded fears we often have.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely it's just
0: amazing you know because we're we're as you said about the media and you know one thing i'd like to say about the media because i mean people often blame the media for focusing on things you know you know as far as the media goes what they're doing is they're putting out what they know sells you know and and people lap it up but also even if you just look at it as a you know if you were to go in as a, as a news person you have a camera that you can only point in one direction. You know, you're only going to tell one story, one portion of the story. And, and I'm sure there's other biases in there as, as well. But, I mean, you don't get the true story and you don't get the boring stories. I mean, you know, that, that story that you just told is amazing because it tells something about the human spirit, about people, about ethics, regardless of, of money. I mean, it says so much, but it's not newsworthy. You know, they're, they're not going to put that on the news because people are going to go ho-hum and, and flip to the, you know, the channel that's showing some gore and, and something high action.
1: Yeah, ap- absolutely. There's some of the most amazing stories that the life that the things that changed my perspective. Uh I'm not a cynical person, but I am a realist. And what changed my perspective and, and made me, and I again I don't say this, I don't want to sound cliche, but um some of the greatest things that happened to me on this trip, those are just two examples. Um when someone pulled over on a donkey when I had a flat tire Two people coming down. Those are just two examples. But it it happened plenty of times in this trip. And you're right. It's not worthy for the news. No one cares. It's a story that I can share with you and I can maybe share with some friends at the bar. But that stuff doesn't sell. But that's the stuff that you can only find if you go out on an an adventure, you know.
0: And it's probably a lot more to do with reality, day-to-day reality in the places that you're in than what is being sold everywhere else.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Where did you go when you left the United States? What was your, what was your planned route?
1: It's actually pretty funny. I've I've got a, I'm not naive to the fact that my style of travel, travel doesn't mesh with everybody. I do love riding. I've got a great group of guys in the Pacific Northwest, uh, that I ride with some of my closest friends I've been on incredible motorcycle trips with, but I do have a seat of your pants last minute planning style of travel. So I didn't plan a day-to-day itinerary for my trip. I generally knew that I wanted to go down south into Morocco and the Mediterranean countries before the heat hit. I do not get along with heat. I am, I am not a fun person to be around when I'm hot. <laughs> I get cranky. So I knew I wanted to do the southern portion of Europe uh, early um, in April and May. So I did a counterclockwise loop it didn't look anything like a circle. But generally speaking, I did a counterclockwise loop around Europe so that I can get the southern countries out of the way before the hot, humid weather hit. And then I made my way north all the way to the Arctic Ocean at the top of Norway in time for uh, 24 hours of sunlight. And then I headed south. So that's, that's generally what my plan looked like. But everything that happened in between was just kind of improv. Well,
0: what would you went to Morocco? You were just dipping down to, into Africa to sort of get a taste of Northern Africa.
1: That's, that's it. it. I I went down there like, I don't want to repeat myself, but I knew that I was stepping out of my comfort zone and I gave myself two days down there and I was literally going down to put a notch in my belt mm. and say that I drove in Africa. And I ended up staying for five days because I loved it. I had cost me money because, uh, I missed my boat back home. I made a decision. I said, I'm not leaving. This place is awesome. It's, Mm -hmm. it's stunningly beautiful and the people are amazing and caring and kind and I didn't leave. Um, so yeah, I, uh, I didn't really have a plan going into Morocco. I just, I just wanted to get in, get out, say that I was there and it turned into exploring dead ends and back roads in the Atlas mountains.
0: I like the way you described being on the ferry and seeing Africa show up and get bigger and bigger and bigger, because I think anyone who hasn't done that can imagine what that would feel like, that that uh, apprehension, the, the fear of, oh, no, this this is imminent now. I don't even have a way to turn around at this point.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, um, and I, I don't want to make Morocco sound like it takes – you don't need to be um, – a really hard adventure at all. Morocco by no means is, I wouldn't even call it a third world country. Um, my friend William has actually just got down to the tip of South Africa. He drove from the top to the bottom, which it just takes incredible guts. So I want to make sure that to, to people listening that I, I don't want to come across, like I did something incredible, but for me, for based on my experiences, um, it was, yeah, it was scary seeing, seeing this continent that I heard so much stuff about on social media. It was, uh, it's pretty interesting, but that's Um, it.
0: It's a personal thing, isn't it? Because when we talk about pushing our comfort zone, it's a personal thing because what is uncomfortable to one person is, is work a day for somebody else. And we're visiting places where people live. Clearly they're comfortable there, you know, so pushing our comfort zone is very personal and it means something different to all of us.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and in, in the more that you the more that you push your personal boundaries the more comfortable you're going to be and it's a learning experience that you learn how to handle different situations so um the more that you do that the less the more um you feel like you can tackle anything
0: so where does photography come in you you weren't a photographer before this trip were you
1: oh yeah i definitely was before this trip um i would say i wasn't a photographer um before I started motorcycle touring. Uh, It started in Colorado. I moved to Aspen, which is like living on the inside of a calendar. Everywhere that you look is picture worthy. Um, You're in the middle of the Rocky Mountains, 8,000 feet above sea level. And I was riding my motorcycle through these amazing mountain passes. And nobody in my family rides motorcycles. And the only way for me to share with them what I saw to buy. I bought a camera. I think it was $99. I don't even know who made it. Um, I bought it at Walmart and I just started pointing my camera. I always had, this is an ongoing joke that I ruin really good pictures with a motorcycle. There's always a motorcycle (laughs) ruining these really scenic pictures. I, there there is a certain style of photography that I see amongst different photographers that, that what I'm drawn to is a picture of scenery that happens to have a motorcycle in it versus pictures of the same old motorcycle over and over. Um, but yeah, that was kind of my goal is to not just show my family a picture of my motorcycle. They'd get, they'd get sick of that really quickly. I started taking pictures to try to capture yeah, the feeling of what I was experiencing. And without really trying, um, I, I just started taking better, as you would expect with any activity that you practice, you get better and better at it and then iphone then i got a smartphone a couple years later and it's incredible how what great quality those will take so i kind of got away from cameras for a while and i was just being lazy and taking pictures with an iphone which works fine and then i decided well there's some cool things that i'm seeing at night i'm camping under the stars and you can see the milky way stretching across the sky and you know, an iPhone just wasn't cutting it for that. So I went out and I bought a DSLR and that allowed me to start taking pictures any time of the day, day or night and documenting my motorcycle trip with with high resolution. And, um, it's just been, I don't know, downhill, uphill. I don't know what the right word to use is. I've just gotten, the more I practice, um, the more comfortable I feel with telling a story through photography.
0: So you've been selling your photography. You've sort of become a well. I say sort of. Are, do you consider yourself a professional photographer
1: at this point? I don't know what the definition of professional is. Um,
0: well, it's. I mean, technically, the definition is if you're getting paid for it, you're a professional. Simple as
1: that. I've gotten. I've gotten paid before. I'm. No, I'm, be honest. I'm not sustainable yet. Um, I saved a lot of money to go on this trip, and I'm not sustainable yet. The the goal would be. Um, not to become a millionaire being a photographer or even make money. It's just figure out a way to make photography, uh, pay for this journey. And I'm getting there slowly. Um, but I'm definitely not there yet. But you've also Um, sold
0: uh, or or at least have your photographs in catalogs and and used for different companies and social media.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And that's really cool. Um, you're right. And, And if that defines professional, that's, that's pretty humbling to hear. Um, it's pretty cool to have really reputable companies approach you and say, that is an amazing picture. Can we use it? And, uh, it's kind of affirmation that your hard work and taking pictures at two in the morning and setting your alarm clock to wake up at sunrise and get, get an awesome picture is kind of, uh, paying off.
0: What's your style of photography? What, what's um, special about your pictures or the way you see things?
1: I like technical, my photography, I don't think is abstract. Um, My photography, again, I'm trying to tell a story through photography. I want my friends and family that are back home, I want them to feel what it was like. I want them to know what it was like to be in top of the mountains in Romania. Um, So my photography is just capturing the environment and capturing the motorcycle in a way that's going to be interesting and inspire uh wanderlust for for lack of a better word i want i i I want the picture to be as realistic as possible for for someone that wasn't there if that makes sense
0: well, photographing for a motorcycle, of course, is not easy because I think the, the first thing that we have to deal with is the bulk of large photography equipment. And if you get into it and you get into any sort of camera with a interchangeable lenses, um, then you have all this stuff to store. And, of course, you have to protect it at the same time. So... Um, I want to get some information about photography from you because you're doing it um, from your bike and you have been doing it for quite some time now from your bike and you're successful at it. So maybe some tips for all of us who, who are listening to your story. Let's say you're going to head off on a trip. What's sort of the the first consideration? And let me just say that I'm kind of thinking that it's thinking about the purpose of your photos. Like, like what are you actually going to do with your photos? Are you going to sell them professionally? Are you going to post them on social media? Is that it? <laughs>
1: Yeah. And I, I, I don't think about that too much. Um, I always think if, 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 if a photo sells or if it ends up in a brochure, then I got really lucky, but I don't go out with the mindset that I'm trying to get, I'm trying to make this picture go viral or I'm trying, I, I take 150 pictures a day. So the first thing you were talking about, what am I thinking about when I go out? Photography takes time. You need to budget some time into your travels for photography. So um, I've, I've done 1000 mile days before and I don't take any pictures. It's, it's usually when I need to cover ground or I'm in a rush. I went on my way down from Alaska. I did Seattle to San Francisco nonstop and I didn't take pictures. There's been portions of this trip that, uh, you know, every 10 minutes I'm pulling over to take a picture and I don't get anything done. Um, on the map, it looks like I've been, uh, probably sitting around drinking coffee all day. Um, because I've covered so little distance. But the reason is I'm taking so many pictures, um, to get back to what you were saying about hauling, you're asking about hauling gear around. Um, that's another consideration is what equipment do I need to bring? Um, I always bring two lenses, one that I can zoom in. I have a uh, 24 millimeter to 120 millimeter, uh, lens. It's not fancy. It's it's what comes in the box with the camera. And then I have a lens that's 20 millimeters and that's wide angle. And it also, uh, it opened, the aperture opens up wide. So I use that for night photography. Those are the only lenses that I carry with me. I carry it in a Pelican case that has pick, it's called pick and pluck foam. Um, you can pick the foam out in the shape of whatever object you're carrying. So I have one, picked out to the shape of the lens and the other holds the camera body with the lens on it and um, that allows me to jump on and off the motorcycle pretty quickly grab the camera out of the case and point it whatever direction I want I put it back in the case I slam the case closed I throw a leg over the motorcycle and I drive another thousand yards sometimes it's only a thousand yards until I take another picture so I get quite a bit of exercise getting on and off the bike
0: well, and, and a big part of photography is having your camera with you and, and available when you see a photograph. Are most of your photographs, especially if, if it's, um, you know, you, you happen upon something that's happening and you, you want to get the shot. It's different if it's landscape because you can take your time at least a bit, depending on the light and setup. Do you carry sort of a point and shoot or something to sort of back you up for those situations?
1: No, and that's a really good idea. For those situations, honestly, I rely on my iPhone. Um, I do miss there have been, whether it's an, a really cool animal in the road or, um, there's one time in, in Seattle, it's actually not an uncommon sight with Boeing being there. There's, um, the airplanes show up on freight train and I was, it's a pretty unique sight to see airplane fuselages crossing the street. How often do you see an airplane crossing the street coming in on a freight train? And there was a really cool picture. The lighting was perfect and I couldn't get off my motorcycle. I'm in the middle of traffic, mind you, to get the camera out and get a picture of the motorcycle with the airplanes crossing in front of it. So having something available definitely is, um, is something that uh, would be convenient. Um, my Pelican case mounts behind me, so I usually do need to get off the bike to get access to it. I think it would be a good idea. I know some people um, keep a camera in their tank bag. I'm just afraid that in a tank bag it bounces around too much. Um, But that would be – you actually gave me an idea, Jim, is keeping a cheap – maybe I can keep a $100 camera in a tank bag and I can keep my DSLR behind me um, for when I do have time to set up the shot.
0: Yeah, because sometimes those shots are, it's a matter of being at the right time, really stumbling across something at the right time and um, and having your camera in hand. And that's what I was talking about, you know, like, like the different types of cameras there are and thinking about what your photos are being used for. Because if you're only shooting for yourself or for social media, there's a good chance that a, a phone, any phone that you have, especially iPhones, because they have incredible cameras, will suffice for your photograph. You can get some incredible photographs there. I understand if you're in, obviously if you're deeper into photography and you want to start uh, adjusting settings to get a particular look or achieve something then that's different and I think at that point you'll know uh you know that that you need different equipment but but that's a big part of it though isn't it is, is sort of and, and the only thing I'll say with that uh, that, I, that comes to my mind is future proofing if you're thinking that well wow, someday uh, you know I may want to do something with these photographs well wow, that's a, that's a different thing but it does matter what you're planning to do with those photos doesn't it
1: absolutely and let's face it uh, uh, 99% of us probably have a budget i'm going to assume that 99 percent of us (laughs) motorcycle riders have some form of a budget we're not billionaires so you do there is a it's very comparable to asking what type of camera should i buy is is as broad of a question to me as saying what type of motorcycle should i buy what's the best type of motorcycle for me there's a million questions that follow well what what do you want to do a a Honda an 1800 CC Honda Goldwing might be the answer or uh, a 250 a two stroke 250 might be the answer there's there's a ton of questions and it's important to ask that with photography too and it's really cool that you recognize that Jim a lot of people uh, an iPhone will suffice for for social media Um, they're shooting an incredibly impressive resolution now and the quality measuring your skill. Um, if you're going to be able to use a camera to its full potential, and I think everybody can, but not everybody has the time to practice. Uh, if you're not going to be using a camera to its full potential, there's not necessarily anything the full frame DSLR is going to accomplish for you that a smartphone won't nowadays. So, um, asking you're absolutely right. Asking yourself, Is this for Instagram and Facebook and for me to share with my friends via text message or do I want to make poster size prints out of it? And if you want to make poster size prints out of it, I do think investing in a camera is a good option.
0: And that question you you mentioned about, you know, that people often ask, you know, what is the best motorcycle, etc. If you're starting out in something and you're saying, well, what's the best camera that you can get? I think it's probably the wrong question. Your your question should be, what is the best camera you can get for a beginner doing this? There's no sense going out spending $8,000 on a body or more when you don't know what to do with it. I mean, I think if you're having even have to ask the question of what is the best camera, it's probably not the camera for you.
1: Yeah, and I and, and I want to be careful about saying that I I never want to come across as condescending. I don't want to say, you know, you can't handle this. I I, I want to encourage people to go out and buy something that's that you're not, also not going to outgrow immediately. That's also important. If if you're really into photography and you have an artistic mind, there are people who post on Instagram using nothing but iPhones. And I can tell by the way that they're composing their picture, they have talent. They have a vision. Um, composition is most of it, is learning how to tell a story in, what, a two inch by two inch box. That's what we're working with on social media now, usually. Uh, another thing to note, there there are photographers out there who are taking incredible pictures with really mediocre equipment. Um, oftentimes, it's photography is about 85 percent creative Um, the other day i took a picture in ireland of the stars and i uh, both of my lenses are broken they're dirty they're scratched i don't have auxiliary lighting um, or off-camera flashes i used my ipod to light paint a picture and i used my iphone flashlight to light paint a separate portion i'm just making it up my my tripod it's a long story, but my tripod fell down a cliff in Norway. And so I don't have a tripod. I used a bunched up t-shirt to hold my camera steady. And the picture came out pretty good. And that's half the battle with photography. And I think a lot of us adventure motorcycle riders are pretty good at being a MacGyver. Um, You can make with a little bit of creativity, you can get by with really junky gear.
0: What do you look for in a picture when you're going along? What catches your eye when you're, you're riding along and you see a certain scenery? Um, what is it that draws you off the bike and pulls the camera out?
1: Anything that's worth remembering is, is when I take the camera out. And it's really hard to put into words. I, I remember Norway is just such a beautiful country. I felt like every bend in the road I would come around there was a small fishing village, or a fjord, or uh, seals swimming in a harbor that I wanted to remember. I might never. Every mile that I cover on this trip, I'm reminding myself. I might never see this again. I better take a picture of it. If you're riding your motorcycle over a pretty mountain pass and you see something that you think is cool, take a picture of it. If it catches your eye. In my opinion, it's worth taking a picture of. It could be a waterfall. It could be a rusty old pickup truck in the woods with bullet holes in it. It could be a beautiful mountain pass. It doesn't matter. If it catches your eye, I take a picture of it. And that's kind of my rule of thumb.
0: Now, when you spot that, something catches your eye and you want to take a picture, because you mentioned several times you've used the word story. You're telling a story with your photographs. How do you take that scene that you're looking at and tell a story?
1: I I step back away from the motorcycle, and that is kind of my style. Oftentimes in my photography, my motorcycle is a really small part of the picture. I like – I'm going to use the word. I don't know what better phrase to use, so I'm just going to say it, motorcycle porn. I like motors. I can scroll through social media all day long and look at pictures of Yamahas and Kawasaki's and Hondas and every motor – Harley's, even – Big cruisers, I do not discriminate with motorcycles. I love seeing a picture of the side of a motorcycle. But after you see a hundred of them, you could I could look at a picture of, uh, let's say, a Honda Africa twin that's parked on top of Mount Everest, taken from the side, or if it's parked in downtown Manhattan taken from the side, it's starting to become repetitive. So to make the pictures unique, what I want to do is capture the environment that the motorcycle's in. Um, because my motorcycle's in, in every picture. I don't want just a detailed close-up picture of my motorcycle all the time. Uh, step back. and If there's a mountain that caught your eye, make sure the mountain's in the photo. Um, if it's the way that the dirt road kind of disappears into the horizon... Make sure you get far enough back. Make sure you capture that, whatever it was that's cool. Definitely, I definitely try to incorporate my motorcycle into it so that it tells the story, hey, this is the magic of motorcycling. You get to find these cool places. Um, but take a step back and try to capture the environment in your photography. At least that's, that's what I'm drawn to when I like pictures. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what other people like. I'm guilty of it, I've gotten caught up in it. I think we all are, especially as a result of social media. Um, I think we try to start figuring out what other people want to see. It's a conscientious effort to disregard that. It, that. Those thoughts are poison. Get that out of your head and start taking pictures of what's gonna help you remember your journey. And it doesn't matter if it's memorable. Take the pictures that are going to help you remember. That's that's all a picture is. It's a memory. Take the pictures that in in 10 years you can look back at and go, oh, I remember being on that section of the BDR. I remember being on that section of highway in the Florida Keys, wherever the heck it is. Take pictures that are going to help you remember your trip, and then everything seems to fall into place about it not being repetitive.
0: Do you have another tip or idea for someone who's interested in getting a little more maybe serious about their photography?
1: Uh, there's just one one term that people can Google search that they can learn about the basics of photography. And it's called, um, like I said, I did all my own research uh, on how to use a camera, mostly by just Google searching. What, what does slow shutter speed do and what does the aperture do? Um, I'd encourage people to Google search Um, the exposure triangle there's only three settings on a camera that affect there's there's lots of buttons on a camera um, especially with technology improving you could send pictures to your computer via wi-fi but the the basic things that existed even in ansel adams time are shutter speed iso whether that's film or now digitally the sensitivity of your sensor and the camera um, in your aperture which is how much light the lens is letting in, they all have a relationship with each other. And every time you adjust one, you need to adjust something else in the camera. And if you did a quick Google search uh, on the exposure triangle, there's some really good material that will explain to you in really simple terms and with great graphics, how a camera sees light. And that would be my advice for someone trying to get out of taking their camera out of automatic mode and taking the next step and putting it in manual mode, do a Google search for exposure triangle. And uh, again, there's some, there's some great reading out there that explains actually how your camera works and how it processes light.
0: Before we wrap things up, I, I want to go back to your experience riding and, and your adventure. You had a problem when you were riding at one point with a scooter that you rented.
1: Yeah, you, there's... Yeah, um, the, probably the biggest speed bump of this trip was in Greece. I find myself telling this story quite a bit. Um, my motorcycle, I, I try to, I do a walk around. You know, I'm always looking at the sight class and making sure there's, there's things that you check before you head out every day, like motor oil. But every few days, I'll check my brake pads. I was looking at my brake pads. I was in Greece. I was on the island of Corfu, which is in northern Greece, off the coast, right near the Albanian border. And I noticed that my rear brake pads were almost down to the metal. And it was to the point I didn't want to ride my motorcycle that day. I thought that I was going to be metal on metal. So I did some research and I found a scooter shop that had brake pads that would fit these Brembo calipers. But a taxi cab would <laughs> would cost me 30 euro to get to this place. And I found a scooter for 15 euro for the day. So I rented a scooter and I was going to go get brake pads for my bike. So I've got, we got an expensive, fancy uh, badass adventure motorcycle sitting and I'm on a 50cc scooter. Well, I, of course, I went out in just jeans and my sneakers and a t-shirt. I was on the bike for about five minutes when someone backed out of a driveway on me and I crashed it. And I went tumbling down the road. I totally destroyed the scooter. I mean, I bent the front suspension and anyways, I'm adrenaline's going. I didn't think that I hurt myself. I did a quick once over of myself. There were no bones sticking out. So I was fine. Well, (laughs) like two hours later, my foot was the size of a basketball. And I was like, ah, I'm a little bit, I'm a little bit too proud to admit that I really seriously injured myself on a 50 CC scooter. I'm a I'm a bad adventure rider. That's I can't I can't admit to that. <laughs> well, the next day my foot is not getting any better, so I go to a Greek hospital and um, they tell me I fractured. It didn't it was it didn't go all the way through, but I fractured a metatarsal bone in my right foot, and I had a pretty good the pavement wore through my sneaker. Anyways, um, I couldn't ride my bike for the week, and. The amount of people I reached out in social media to who might be able to assist me and the adventure biking community, uh, came together and offered. I had, um, someone from Bulgaria who had been following my photography for just a couple months who offered to drive a truck down. It was like a 14 hour drive, drive a truck down and get my motorcycle and bring me back and let me heal at his place free of charge and um you know when that happened with a broken foot in an adventure like this uh and you see the community come together to help a fellow rider that was a pretty awesome experience and um I didn't end up going that route I I let my foot rest for a week and then I got uh I got anxious I, I wrapped it in ace bandage and strapped some crutches to my bike and carried on So I was driving around with an injured foot for quite a while. I couldn't fit my foot in a motorcycle boot for about a month and a half. Um, so yeah, that was a conversation starter, having crutches strapped to the side of the bike as I drove through Bosnia and Croatia and all these different places. But that's, that was one of the more interesting parts of this trip is, uh, yeah, crashing a 50 CC scooter. Um, I'm not afraid to admit to it. It happens. And learning lesson is you can hurt yourself on those make sure you have protective gear on
0: the at gat. and i often chuckle when people say well i'm at gat most of the time what well, you can't be <laughs> all the gear all the yeah. time most of the time
1: it seems i've in after yeah, i was pretty public about it I, I wrote about it and i poked fun at myself On i have no shame about crashing this i do have a little bit of shame but i have no shame in admitting to it and um the The number of other really good motorcycle riders, like some guys that I rode with, that who, who are just like human gyroscopes on these motorcycles, are like, oh man, I've crashed a scooter before. <laughs> it seems like everyone has a horrible. I think like motorcyclists should just stay away from scooters. That don't don't touch scooters. Stick stick with your one thousand cc. 100-horsepower motorcycle, and you'll be fine. You get in the 50cc spikes, you start getting hurt.
0: Well, Tim, keep those photos coming. We really enjoy them. I'm sure everyone else does too. Thank you very much.
1: Thanks so much, Jim. It was great talking to you.
0: And that was Tim Burke at the very end of his trip, sitting in Dublin, Ireland, getting ready to head back home to the States. You can find out more about Tim by searching Instagram or Facebook at Tim Burke Photo. And, of course, that link and more is in the show notes to this episode. Well, we're going to take a quick break and be right back. we got a lot more happening here on this episode. You're looking at almost two hours, I think. So maybe you want to grab a coffee at this point and come back to it. But we're going to take a minute right now and thank a couple of sponsors that helped make this episode possible for you today. Well, the first one is PSSOR, which is Puget Sound Safety Off-Road. And it's the off-road training division of Puget Sound Safety, which has been providing world-class motorcycle training to new and avid motorcyclists since 1996. That's a long time. Now, Brett Tax is one of the owners of PSSOR, and you probably know Brett at this point from our rider skills here on this program. And, you know, I got to tell you, they've they've got so many things going on at PSSOR. They've got um, bike rentals through them, which uh, their other company called Tour USA, but you can get it all through PSSOR. You can get bike rentals, but most importantly, you can get instructions, instructions for off-road riding for adventure bikes like we have. And I'm telling you, there is nothing better than learning quality skills from a professional like Brett and the other instructors at pssor to further your adventure riding it'll make you a better rider and allow you to take that motorcycle further than what you've been doing and without the apprehension i think that's the big part um, it, it gives you confidence and expands your comfort zone www.pssor.com and anytime you're dealing with them make sure you drop the line you heard them here on adventure rider radio Scott Wright is the owner of IMS Products, and Scott himself is a a serious rider. Racer, too, as a matter of fact. He's a former Baja 1000 winner. And Scott stands behind his foot pegs that are made for adventure riders. IMS Products is a household name in the racing scene. They're known for their fueling systems and their shift levers, and now for a range of some really nice foot pegs. I was talking with Scott a few weeks back, and he was telling me just what goes into the design of the foot pegs And we talked about different things like the design of the teeth and the design of even the angles of the undercut on the underside is meant so that it doesn't hold mud in there, so that the mud actually drops out. It's called a watershed design. But he said that they even tested them by crushing them in a press to the point where the inner parts of the peg were touching. And when they released it, there was no damage except for the mark where the two sides contacted. Now, of course, you and I will never do That to our foot pegs. We'll never put them to that kind of abuse. But it does say something about the the IMS dedication to quality. I mean, I, I really like that. These are cast certified 17.4 stainless steel foot pegs that not only look great, but for me, and I'm, I have them on my bike, they've done a lot for the feeling and handling of the bike. It's, it's incredible. So, made in the USA with a lifetime warranty, www.imsproducts.com. Drop by the website, have a look at the pegs, and make sure you tell them you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. Well, if you're looking for adventure come the end of this year, October 28th to November 4th, October 28th to November 4th. The Copper Canyon is the place you got to be. And J.J. Lewis from the Good Adventure Company is heading up a trip to the Copper Canyon. They um, use some of their proceeds to help, um, well, all all kinds of things. In this case, it's the kids in Batopilas. They've given almost $10,000 to a school in Batopilas uh, in the past two years. And this trip is supposed to be incredible. It's got amazing off-road sections. Apparently, it'll test even the hardiest riders, twisties that go on forever. They've got incredible accommodations. It's really supposed to be a spectacular trip. If you're curious about it, drop by the website. Actually, send him an email because he can connect you with people who have done the trip already. It's for high intermediate to expert adventure riders. So you've got to know that you're a good rider. Give JJ a call or send him an email. It's the Good Adventure Company. It's www.good-adv.com. And of course, anytime you're dealing with them, let them know you heard them here on Adventure Rider Radio. And and by the way, they also sell all kinds of products on our website. So if you want to buy from a company that's going to use some of their profits to um, help others in need, check out the Good Adventure Company, www.good-adv.com. Well, there's this fellow that goes around documenting his life in journals. Now, that's the paper things, in case you're so deep in the digital age that you lack the reference for journal. Anyway, this interview is from the Adventure Writer Radio archives. Now, I didn't even realize we had archives until our producer, Elizabeth, came up with doing this. It's pretty cool. We've been doing this for over three years now, nonstop. Anyway, the next piece is an original from August 2014, and you may recognize the sound of his voice. Some riders prefer to go solo and other than the obvious assets of riding in a group, in other words, safety and having someone there if you break down or they break down or need help or assistance of any kind, it's nice to have somebody there. But other than that, aside from the obvious, one of the real advantages of traveling with someone else, be it another rider or even a pillion, is sharing the experience sharing your day, sharing the adventure that you've had. Because when you travel by yourself, I think, in my mind, a lot of times you forget a lot of what you do. I mean, we have the memorable moments that stick with us for a long time, but a lot of the stuff just goes by. I remember riding uh, one particular time on Vancouver Island, exploring the back roads, going through the mountains, the logging roads, etc. Checking out the odd trail, saw a couple of beautiful vistas. The weather was perfect. I mean, it was it was like your picture perfect trip. It was all warm, and it was warm at night. It was just it was great. And I remember I pulled in by a lake that I like to swim at, and I'd planned on it, and it was a planned stop for me uh, near the end of the day, or in say mid afternoon. And I pull in there, and the, nobody's there. I jump in the water. It's warm. It's got a nice sandy beach there, a little tiny beach that you go in at. It It was perfect. It was beautiful. And I remember floating around on my back there in the water, looking up at that beautiful blue sky and thinking, man, life doesn't get any better than this. And then as I said that to myself, I kind of thought, you know, I'm probably going to forget this. I'm probably going to do this. Like I do so many things by myself and totally forget all the details about the day. Now if I had somebody there with me, we would talk about it and we'd maybe reminisce about it down the road, maybe even take some photographs together. But when you're by yourself, there's something different there. It's a different experience but it's also different when it comes to remembering. And there is a way that you can remember, or at least jog your memory. And that's just making notes, writing it down. I mean, I'm sure you had the experience where you go back and look at something that you wrote maybe years before, or months before. It brings back every memory, every smell, every detail, you know, it brings back the vision of what you saw that day. It's an incredibly powerful way to relive an experience. And it's common with overlanders, people who do the long trips to do just that. They understand the value of writing the notes out and being able to look at it later on and relive the experience. And although I have a couple of journals that I've made sporadic entries in over the years, sometimes going months without making any entry whatsoever, I can go back to any one of them, open up the page and I can read it. I remember every detail. It is the most vivid way to remember something, to go through and read your own handwriting. Today, we will meet someone who documents every day of his life. Doesn't matter how mundane, doesn't matter what happens or what doesn't happen, he documents it, and has had for the last 20 or 25 years. And that's Graham Field. And guess what? Graham Field is also an overlander. He's a motorcycle adventurer. He's written a couple of books, which we're going to talk about, and he's a really interesting character. You're going to hear me surprise Graham with my request to get him to do something that I don't think he ever thought anyone would ask him to do, but you're also going to hear one of the most unconventional ways to finance a trip. I've never heard of anyone financing a trip through this method. I would highly recommend it to you, but I'm gonna make you wait and hear it from Graham. Coming up next, we've got Graham Field, motorcyclist, adventurer, author, and a guy who financed at least one of his trips in a completely unconventional and possibly unrepeatable way. Hello. And here's the guy I've been telling you about all the way from the UK. Uh,
2: My name's Graham Field. Um, I write uh, motorcycle overland books, and I'm from Essex in England.
0: Graham Field is an adventure, motorcyclist, overlander, and he's an author of two books of his adventures. One's In Search of Greener Grass, and the other one is Eureka with a U, and he'll explain that, of course, later on. When you visit Graham's website, you'll see that he um, started traveling at a young age, and
2: he says it all started with a round-the-world trip with a girlfriend, which would have been back in 1990, and that was a year-long trip, um, which... I don't know if it changed my life, but it certainly made me realise that travel was what I enjoyed most. And I spent a lot of time going to the States. I got friends out there, so I used to travel around the States a bit. And then probably the big changing one was six months on my own backpacking around India, um, not that you're ever really on your own, but I went on my own and I came back on my own. So uh, that was when I realized that I can travel solo and independently on quite a low budget. And ultimately, it's something I really enjoy. Um, so then the backpacking continued round South America. And uh, various other things. Now, I've always, always ridden motorbikes. Since before I was even old enough to have a license, I've ridden motorbikes. So two of the constants in my life are travel and motorbikes. But it took me about 25 years to figure out I could put the two together. Um, and when that happened, uh, I really never looked back. Everything changed for the better. So there were several uh, motorcycle trips around the States, Um and, uh, which cause, cause I sort of spent half my life out there, um, and sort of based in Colorado, we'd go out to California and then a big one was up to Alaska from Colorado, which ended up being an 11,000 mile trip on a totally impractical bike. Um, but then when I really got my act together was there's a TV game show in the UK and it's also in other countries, certainly in the States. I don't know if you have it in Canada, but it's called deal or no deal. And um, are you familiar with that at
0: all? You know, the problem is, Graham, um, you're actually talking to one of the few people who I I haven't seen television for about 25 years. Uh, I made a conscious uh, decision to get rid of it when we had kids and and we've never had it. And I can't seem to even find time to fit it in. So I don't have a clue. I'm I'm really I mean, a lot of people raise their eyebrows and look at me like I live under a rock. No, I I don't have a clue. (laughs)
2: No, well, good for you for not having a telly. Since I did that thing, which was about five or six years ago, I haven't had one either. Um, But what happened was the story was I was in between houses, I sold my house, hadn't bought one, living with a friend, which meant didn't have an awful lot to do. All my possessions were in storage. So I got addicted to this thing we call TV. I hadn't had one prior to that. And I haven't had one since that. Um, So anyway, there's this show called Deal or No Deal, and if I try and explain it, I overcomplicate it, but the fact is there's a bunch of boxes, all have different amounts of money in it. There is one question in this game show. It's not like who wants to be a millionaire. It's not difficult. You just get offered various amounts of money to which you reply deal or no deal, depending on whether you're going to accept that money. Anyway. I won £5,000, about $7, US dollars on that show. And in my application form to be on that show, one of the questions they'd ask was, what would you do if you won a significant amount of money? And I rather flippantly wrote, I would do a motorcycle trip, which would make Charlie and Ewan's Long Way Round look like a trip to the grocery store. <laughs> so unfortunately, they mentioned that in the actual <laughs> show, and it wasn't edited out So I sort of had to put my money where my mouth was. Um, And they they asked me on the show, what would you need for that kind of trip? And I clearly didn't have a clue what I was talking about. Um, So I spent that winter researching a bit. I bought myself a 1996 KLR 650 off of eBay. Um, which was about 700 pounds, I don't know, about 11,000, about 1100 US dollars. Now, KLR 650s, as you know, in North America are like a religion. They're huge, but they're really rare beasts, this side of the Atlantic. We've got a lot of other Japanese bikes which are comparable to that, like the Yamaha make the um, the XT and uh, Suzuki make the DR. And so the the Kaosaki never really bought the KLR over here in, in great bulk, and they're not very popular um, however, I did find out what a spectacular bike it is. So on a very inexpensive bike with a bunch of products that I bought off of eBay, um, my whole bike stood me at about 2,000 pounds, about 3,000 US, and I set off to ride to Mongolia. And that was how it all came to be. <laughs>
0: India, you mentioned, was a life changer for you, and I guess in a in a basic sense, that's changed your idea of travel. But this winnings in, in on Deal or No Deal was the thing that really changed your life. Then
2: it was because um, obviously I'd watched The Long Way Round. I had sort of thought about that style of travel. When I travel, the the part of the UK that I live in is a very crowded part. If you look at world population maps, you look at places like Manhattan Island, Hong Kong, um, and they're all coloured in red to show a very dense population. Well, so is the southeast of England. We've got real high-density population. And so what I love is to get out and get away from it all. So Mongolia seemed like the place to go. It's one of the least populated countries on the planet. And... um, So with three visas, one for Russia, one for Kazakhstan, and one for Mongolia, and no sense of proportion at all. And the £5,000 that I'd won off of the game show, that was my budget. That's what I did. And slowly through, well, initially what I did, in fact, was go to Sweden to a rock festival because it was far less daunting to leave my house thinking I'm just going to a rock festival in Sweden than it was to think, actually, I'm riding all the way to Mongolia. <laughs> so it started with a rock festival. Um, and then from there, Poland into Ukraine, which, you know, by you've got home, you've got into Ukraine, you've got Cyrillic alphabet. So things are getting pretty strange. You can't read the words anymore. Um, and then a ferry, um, actually down to the Crimea, in fact, um, which is, of course, making all the headlines at the moment, across uh, into Russia, and to Russia the first time, and then Kazakhstan. Uh, out the top of Kazakhstan, you come into Russia a second time, and then down into Mongolia. And I made it. I made it to Mongolia. My little 700 quid bike, which I used to do my grocery shop on, I've just ridden it to where camels are roving to the center of Mongolia, to Ulaanbaatar. Uh, it was pretty spectacular moment for me because it was an unthinkable distance before I left home. And having made it there, I realized it was a little bit short-sighted, it being a landlocked country on the biggest landmass on the planet. You've got to go somewhere from there. Um, It's not known for its ports, So my bike was using a lot of oil. It was getting pretty knackered. I thought, okay, well, I'm going to keep heading east. So I went into Russia a third time uh, across the Trans-Siberian Highway to Vady hoping perhaps I could ship it back from Vladivostok. Um, However, because it was such a cheap bike, it was going to cost me four times what the bike had cost me to ship it back to the UK. And one of the stipulations of entry into Russia is that you leave with the vehicle that you came in with. So I couldn't even give the thing away. And it deserved better than just to be pushed off the edge of the dock. And so my little bike was becoming a little bit of a ball and chain. I'm rapidly running out of countries I can go to. From Vadivostok, you've got Japan. Well, I didn't have a car now. I couldn't do that. North Korea and China, not really famous for tourism. And equally, you need a lot of paperwork if you did want to get into China. So the only country that was left to me as an option was South Korea. Um, I was only going to go as far as Mongolia. That seemed good enough. Now, South Korea, all I knew about Korea was what I'd seen on MASH. I knew nothing else about it. So I got a ferry down to Korea. And anyway, a cut long story short, as a personal favour, some people who have these roll-on, roll-off ferries, which they ship the Kia and the Hyundai cars on, let me put my little bike on their ferry. And 40 days later, it ended up back in Southampton in the UK, and I got my hands back on it again.
0: So this, um, the trip to Mongolia, you came back home, and then what happened?
2: What happened? So did that trip. I was pretty impressive myself for doing that. And, uh, and as particularly on such a small budget, I mean, it really wasn't an endurance test. Some days you're out in the middle of nowhere. There is nowhere to spend your money on if you want to. You're camping in the middle of the steppe, There's nothing around. The only food you've got to eat is what you bought with you in your panniers. Other days you're just knackered. You want a nice hotel. You want a bit of luxury. You want to charge your batteries physically and mentally. And um, so, but that's what it worked out at, about £50 a day, about $7,500. It was a 100-day trip, so it um, worked out about... £50 a day. So um, I thought, well, uh, I might write a book about it. So um, I've always written. I mean, I've kept a diary constantly for 25 years. I mean, every single day of my life, it's the one discipline in my life is that I've kept a diary. That's incredible. Um, Back in my early 20s.
0: No, that's amazing. There's there's so few people who do that, but it's an incredible thing to do. I've done it off and on um, for the past uh, 30 years of my life. Very uh, erratic with my entries. But when I go back to them, and I was just telling somebody this the other day that I was interviewing, when I go back to those entries, it takes me to that day. I can picture the day. I can feel the heat or the cold. I can see exactly what it looked like. I can smell things. It's amazing.
2: It is. It is. I treasure them. I mean, I keep them all in fireproof boxes. If I were to ever lose them, it would be like a lobotomy because all my memories are in there. Um, so, yeah, 25 years of diaries. And it is, like I say, a discipline every single day. And like anything, I think if you do something regularly, you get better at it. And the, apart from anything else, like, well, back in my 20s, I probably partied a bit too hard didn't con- always remember exactly what I'd done and I'd be with friends and they'd be reminiscing about some event we went to some festival or some bike show and I had no recollection of it at all really was I even there yeah don't you remember this happened so what is the point in having me always these having these fun times if you don't recall them that's probably what started me doing a diary and what happens I think is um, Writing it down, you relive that experience a second time. Even if you don't go back to those days to reread them, you've already kind of uh, embedded the memory in a little more because you've relived it as you've written it down. So. I'm terrible at remembering faces. I'm terrible at remembering names, but I have a really good memory of dates. When somebody asked me, oh, you know, have you been to Penang in Malaysia? Yeah, now that would have been about April of 91. I can, if not give you the, the actual day, I can give you the month and a year because I can associate it in a chronological order with what else I've done because it's all written down. Anyway, point is, always kept a diary. And... Um, so the, the book I wrote in diary format, um, because I think journeys are taken a day at a time. I don't start my books with the big drama, the big accident or love scene or whatever. It starts with you leaving the house. And a lot of people who have read it have said, you know, they feel like they're on the ride with me because they experience the highs and lows as they happen, as you would on a journey. Um, and also, the, it was much easier to write that way because I wasn't sitting down to think. God, oh, I got to write a book. I was sitting down and writing. I've got to document the day. And if you chunk something like that, um, it was a hundred-day trip. Uh, after you've done that a hundred times, there's uh, well, there was a hundred and fifty thousand-word word document, um, and it was it was relatively easy to write. I think. Um, Anyway, um, people seemed to like it, and uh, it did all right. And um, so I thought i will do it again. I'll do another trip and write another book. So kind of what
0: happened. This is your first trip to Mongolia, but then you did more after this.
2: That's right. So what I decided I'd do, um, I like heading east, uh, particularly from here in the UK. It's a very gradual transition um, because as you sort of leave Western Europe and go into Eastern Europe, um slowly things change where you start seeing horses and carts being used on the road um the, the dress changes it becomes more traditional and as i said earlier, there's, you go even further east you reach the Cyrillic alphabet and then you can't read anymore as you continue going east from say Bulgaria to Turkey then you get into Islamic states so the tradition the uh, transition is slow and you're not suddenly wide-eyed in a completely foreign culture Um, So I thought I'd head east again. My intention was to go to Iran, but uh, it was this time last year, last spring, spring of 2013, and they were having their elections and I couldn't get a visa for various reasons. But I thought, okay, well, I'll go through what's collectively known as the stands, and then come back through Russia and actually do a round trip this time. So, yeah, same little bike, headed off um, through Eastern Europe, Turkey, and I decided I'd swing down into Iraq just to see what it was like. Uh, It's very easy to get a uh, a visa for Iraq. You just get one on the border. And um, so I went down into Iraq, um, which was really hot because it was – because it was summer, <laughs> and, uh, and spent a little time there, which was really quite incredible because we a lot of the places, or I like to go to places which have sort of a one-word association. You know, you mentioned Kazakhstan. A lot of people come back with Borat. You say Iraq, people think Gulf War. But there's significantly more to these countries than the sensationalised news reports or the ridiculously irresponsible movies or whatever. So I met... Uh, people who were so incredibly generous and hospitable and just to the point where i couldn't even spend my money um if i'd go into a restaurant and they chat to me and i'd order some breakfast it's like no it's our pleasure it's for you it's a gift from us enjoy our country i'd go into a shop to buy some water and again it was gifted to me it was Really humbling to the point where when somebody did charge me for something, I'd be, have well, I pissed you off? No one else does, you know. <laughs> so um, it was, uh, it, it, it was a wonderfully friendly com- country, very misunderstood country. Um, so then from there went up north through Turkey, back into Turkey, up into Georgia and Azerbaijan. And anyway, to cut a long story short, uh, at the Caspian Sea, where I was supposed to get a ferry across to enter Turkmenistan and continue my trip in the Stans, it all kind of went a bit pear-shaped. And um, that's kind of the point of the second book. It was a huge decision, but I decided to do a U-turn. And at that point, everything fell into place. It's as if the planets aligned, and the trip just took on a whole new momentum, and it was really meant to be. And it was a very tough decision to actually give up on the plan but in actual fact, it was totally the best thing to do because, um, yeah, it all came right. And it ended up, again, being a 15,000-mile trip. And again, it was a 100-day trip. It just wasn't what I'd uh,
0: expected it to be. And then you ended up back at home?
2: Yes, yeah, so I ended up back at home. In actual fact, it was a year and two days ago I got back to my house. Um, I had it rented out, rented out. I always rent it out when I go away because then I don't have to worry about the mortgage and what have you. And someone else deals with that. Um, and the tenant uh moved out on the 5th of august last year and that's when i moved back in so i thought am i going to be able to even write a book about this the the trip went wrong it wasn't what it was supposed to do uh, be but i did and it actually worked out quite well because there's 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 a lot of I'm I'm sure on your side of the Atlantic as well, there's a lot of magazines, there's a lot of TV, there's a lot of stuff all based around adventure, whether it's the the bikes with adventure on their name or the magazines or the TV programs, adventure is constantly being bombarded by it. And... um, it's not that bloody easy. It's, <laughs> it's difficult. You know, it doesn't just happen. And so I think I was honest enough to say that sometimes plans go wrong and it's okay. Some challenges are meant to be faced and I think it's okay to turn your backs on others because ultimately, unless you're fully sponsored and you, or, or whatever, ultimately you're doing it for you. It's kind of a selfish thing. And if you're not having a good time, it's all right to change those plans and, and turn it around so that you are having a good time, which is what I did. Like I say, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And so the second book was called Eureka, spelled with a U, because when I did the U-turn, I found the contentment, everything fell into place. So, yeah, and that was the second book, and uh, uh, without ruining the plot.
0: (laughs) People wonder when they hear about someone like yourself going and traveling around the world on this low budget, on a motorcycle, and staying in hotels – finance everyone wonders finance and everyone says how on earth can they finance it that's a really big thing can you talk about how you finance your trips
2: yeah um i I wonder that too i mean what i do are three month trips three and a half month trips about 100 days that for me is the perfect amount of time after three and a half months I think you perhaps start getting a little bit complacent, beautiful architecture, stunning mountains, deserts, palm trees. They start to lose their thrill a little bit, I think, after three and a half months. And it's perhaps time to go back home and go back to a working life where um, uh, you appreciate what you've seen all the more. Um, So I wonder, too, when these people go off for three, four-year round-the-world trips, how the hell they finance it. Well, the first one was financed by the winnings of a game show. Obviously, that's not an option for everybody. But still, like I say, and I'll just stick with pounds now, it was a £5,000 budget. So it's not an unthinkable amount to save. And the second trip was exactly the same, 100 days with a five grand budget. I think, you know, especially, you know, people around here love to drive around in their big four by four cars, have their bloody great TVs on their walls and say how lucky I am. Well, I drive around in a sheer little van and I don't even have a TV. So it's all about priorities. I prioritise my life. I shop out the bargain basement reduced section of the supermarket because I get a lot more pleasure. That money will go a lot further on the road than it does buying into these material items that really only end up owning you anyway. And if they really give you that much pleasure, then how come you have to upgrade them to the next one when it comes out? So it can't really be a satisfying lifestyle. So to get back to your point, five grand is not an unthinkable amount of money to save if you choose to prioritise your income to saving for a trip as opposed to buying into the latest products, iPhones, whatever. Um, so it's not a huge budget. But also, as I said earlier, it's not a huge endurance test for me because sometimes you just need a hotel. I'm not going to be a martyr and camp in wet clothes and pissing rain night after night. I'm not going to... Uh, deny myself some luxuries when I just need them. I mean i'm forty eight now and I'm not as hardcore as I used to be. Sometimes you just need some comfort, you know.
0: <laughs> Graham, why do you travel?
2: Why do I travel? Well, there's a couple of reasons really. Firstly, um, it I'm really really happy when I'm traveling. I love the independence of it. I love the simplicity of it. I like that I have. I'm self-contained. I have everything I need in my panniers, and I can stop when I want to. If we're talking about bike travel, this is. I can stop when I want to. I can put up my tent. I can feed myself, and I can stay there for a few days until my water supplies run out. That for me is when I'm happiest. When I'm not surrounded by um, just the daily things in our in our Western lifestyles that that trap us and stop us being what really is is free. So that aspect of it, I really like. But as I travel more, as I get older and more informed, as, as I probably become more cynical as well, what I like, the aspect I get from it more and more is seeing how things really are, as opposed to how we're told they are. I've I realized just how controlling the media is, how they have an agenda, and how misinformed they deliberately make us, and how they can really spark off this religious hatred, be it with Islamic fundamentalists or whatever. all, the only knowledge we have of these people quite often is what we're told on the TV and the radio. And there is nothing like a first-hand experience to meet these people of these countries to see what they're really like. And, of course, they're just like us. They have pictures of their kids on their phones. They just want to keep their kids safe, educated, fed, and sheltered. You know, we all across the planet basically have the same needs to nurture people and outside of that there will always be the extreme people but they are the minority you know the people who make headlines they're the people who sell newspapers and, and advertising to to news companies that's the sensationism but that is also the minority and and why i like to travel is to constantly remind myself that people are generally good people you know
0: Graham, in, some of the, uh, in one of the descriptions for your book, it um, talked about you being very honest, uh, almost offensive to some people. Do you uh, think of yourself as, um, as shocking, brash, or brutally honest? What's your style there?
2: Um, I don't think I deliberately go out to be provocative. Um, and I think when people st- – and I think when you read the book – As I said, it's a diary format. You don't lie in your diary. So if somebody pisses me off, I say it Um, equally when something is just stunning and numbing awe of it or someone's gone above and beyond any level of um, generosity to look after me. I mention that, too. Um, It's all about the highs and lows of travel. So, I mean, I think the person I make fun of most in my books is myself because I really go into some stupid situations And for all my experience, I don't seem to learn that much from it and uh, still get myself into predicaments. And I think if you are okay with making fun of yourself, that gives you the right to make fun of other people. So, yes, I do make fun of other people and I don't go out to be deliberately offensive or provocative. Um, But, yeah, I'll have a poke at someone if they deserve it. Yeah.
0: Instantly, you make the book sound even better. (laughs) Instantly. (laughs) That adds an edge that makes any book sound like something you need to pick up. So clearly, this is the case with your two books. (laughs) Can we go back to India for a moment? Um, Because I'm intrigued by the fact that India was a time of a change for you where you discovered that you could travel on your own. Can you talk a little bit more about that and and how that discovery came about? Yeah,
2: it was... um... I'd, I'd had a, a relationship had come to an end. I was at a bit of a loose end, so, um, as so many Western people do, I decided I'd go to India and find myself or lose myself or whatever. Um, so yeah, I just went out with a backpack. Um, I had two thousand US dollars. This was in '96, and I had a six-month visa. And uh, initially I went to Goa, which is a very modern place and Indians, um, if you ever you know, whenever I I get a call centre and they're they're in India, I love to ask them whereabouts they are because I know their country a little bit and if they say, oh well where in India have you been? And I say, oh Goa and they say, well it's not really India is it sir Um, and it's not, it's a gentle uh, transition into the Indian subcontinent because it is quite gentle and the foods are western and the English is language uh, the the language is English. Um, However after that, I then went off into a bit more of the country. And in 96, the, the Internet really wasn't out there. I mean, they have come such a long way since then. There is a huge middle class in India now and there's a lot of wealthy people. And more importantly, there's a lot of very informed people. The information they had of the West back then was two TV programs, Baywatch and WWF wrestling, and that somewhere they made their their um, images of the West based around those two programs. So it wasn't an t- entirely accurate idea that they had. Um, so it was it was incredible that back then, and and it has changed a lot. People would still touch your skin because they hadn't seen white skin. They would be, and I got kind of long hair as well, so I just didn't fit into what was what they what they saw i mean there were backpacker areas where you were more accepted but it's not that difficult to stray off the beaten track and indians are lovely people they are so interested intrigued in in you. And and a lot of them do speak English. So you can have more than just point and mind conversations. And it can be really hard work. It's a very populated place. They can be very in your face at times. And quite often I think a trip to India is appreciated on retrospect when you're back in the in the tranquility of your own country. Um, And it it can definitely be hard. And you see people out there, Westerners out there, who have just been there too long. They're not getting anything out of it. They're just getting wound up by everything that's going on um it, it's a spectacular magical chaotic country that we will never fully understand um, but it's it, it's so diverse it's a very big place from mountains to palms and plains um, and uh, and i still i mean I, I think the last time i was there was about two years ago and there's, there's still a magic there i don't think that will ever disappear so yeah i, I love india
0: you found um, you found a change in yourself there when you went the first time. Is that just because you managed to do it? You said, "Okay, wow, I can do this."
2: I think so. I mean, I drove a truck in the UK for 17 years, so I'm kind of used to my own company, um, which probably put me in good stead for when I um, got to India and was traveling alone. And like I say, you're never truly alone. But I found that I was I was capable of making decisions, booking trains, catching buses. Finding places to stay. You don't really camp in India. It's so densely populated, and the and it's also very cheap. So you can get guest houses for a very minimal amount. And so in my backpack, I wasn't carrying camping or cooking equipment. It was just <laughs> fifteen cassette tapes and uh, and the clothes I needed. So um, it, yeah, I think I proved myself that I was I was capable of doing it. I think some of the I don't know how accurate this is, but probably some of the more challenging countries to travel around would be um, China and India. And I had just done India. So I thought, I think I can. I think I'm OK. I think I can carry on doing this. You know, I've just I've met the challenges I've, and ultimately I've enjoyed it. So, uh, yeah, it was life well uh, life affirming. You know, I knew that it was something I could do
0: nowadays a lot of people are looking to go on their their whatever adventure but th- in this case particularly motorcycle adventure and um, before they go they're trying to find sponsors they're talking about filming they're talking about writing a blog possibly uh doing a book it's very much in a lot of people's minds when they're planning trips for themselves how do you feel about sponsored versus personal trips
2: uh for me i wouldn't do it um the reason why i i In the first book, I mention a couple of Austrians who I met who were fully sponsored, from bikes to laptops to their phones and their phone calls. They had a camera with a lens, which cost more than my entire trip cost. Now, that looks great on the face of it. These guys are basically getting paid to do a trip from Austria down to China. Spectacular. What could be wrong? Well, what was wrong was they had huge obligations to their sponsors to achieve this. They also, having set off together, realised that they actually actually didn't like each other that much, but were obliged to stay together because that was the package that they sold to the sponsors. They also had to do all these places. There was no room for uh, changing their plans. They had to do what they said they were going to do. And ultimately, They were conditioned to blog and email and what have you. So when we, there was one particular place in Kazakhstan um, where we were in this fabulous little town for a night. We were offered to go off for a tour with this local in his car, go to a nightclub, go to a restaurant. But they sat under the fluorescent lights in a gaudy internet cafe, fulfilling their obligations and writing their blogs to the sponsors because that's what they had to do. They were missing the trip. Because they were doing what they had to do to get on the trip in the first place. Sponsorship is a ball and chain. It's be aware when you're given all this stuff that it isn't free. It comes with a price. And surely the point of getting off on your bike and riding is to escape all the restrictions and all the confines that we have when we're – at home, living our normal lives, and so I'm, I'm not really. That's why my trips are affordable prices and and of the length they are because I can afford that, and I do, I'm not obligated to anybody to do to deliver anything from those trips. So yeah, sponsorship, I'm, I'm not a huge fan.
0: And it makes you wonder if really the sponsorship uh, just ends up getting you some products that you probably don't need. I'm often taken by people like yourself. You take a 1996 KLR 650 that you bought off eBay and you ride it, you know, forever. And uh, you're not worried about having the, the latest, greatest, obviously, or you'd be riding the the latest motorcycle And I think sometimes a sponsorship gets people caught up in that thinking that they need all this fantastic gear. Do you find yourself buying the latest, greatest gear to go on your trips or do you take what you have?
2: No, I mean, of course, there's huge industries built around this bubble of adventure bike riding who are Touratech and various people who make all these products, um, which I'm sure are wonderful products. Uh, If I bought those products, I couldn't afford to go away. So. It's not really an option for me. There are, because I do a lot of the bike shows where I have stands and sell my books, and I have become more aware of the various products that are available. I have bought in to better quality camping equipment. I've got myself a really good tent, um, which will stand up for the strongest of thunderstorms. I've got myself a, a lovely blow-up mattress, which takes up hardly any room and makes for a comfy night's sleep, and I've got a good sleeping bag. Because I think when you do camp, when you are sleeping, it's important that you get good sleep because if you don't you're going to be fatigued on the road next day at best you're not going to be that aware of the scenery you're passing at worst you're going to be more likely to have an accident because of your fatigue and lack of rest so i do buy into good quality camping equipment the rest of it i really don't think is that important the jacket i took last year to turkey and iran was or iraq was uh was a three pound jacket that i bought off of ebay yeah it bloody leaked but the money that i saved instead of buying into a thousand dollar climb jacket I could get a hotel when I was soaking wet, and it didn't own me. If I did lose it, if it was strapped on the back of the bike and someone pinched it, I have only lost a three-pound jacket. I haven't lost a a huge expensive thing. And also, when you go to these poorer countries, we're rich Westerners, whether we like it or not, and if you've got a bike that's covered in bling, if you're walking around in squeaking boots and chainmail climb gear, then you can hardly portray... The, the the image that you want of, of trying to blend in. If you're trying to haggle for the price of the room and you've got a 15 grand GS parked outside, it really is a bit of a contradiction. And also having a cheaper and smaller bike, I think, um, I, I've got a bunch of homemade parts. I'm not an engineer by any any means. I mean I've got a toilet brush holder across the front which I keep my tools in. I've got a chip pan fryer. Uh, Cover which I got over my headlight to protect it from rocks and things like that. So in these poorer countries, they have ingenuity. They don't have internet and part numbers, but they can make things work. So I think, again, it's an appreciation from locals is that you've used a bit of ingenuity, that you've been able to um, – it's something you can relate to. It's a conversation piece. So I do understand that if you're not in a position because of your – because of, of family and, and career um, and what have you, you can't necessarily go off for three months. And so if you can only take a two-week vacation, then perhaps you do enjoy making your bike the best it can be by buying into the accessories because you simply can't afford the time to, to go off and do that stuff. For me, it's about doing it on minimalistic means and, um, and functional. It doesn't have to be top-of-the-range stuff.
0: Do you do any filming with a GoPro or any uh, helmet or bike-mounted camera while you're out?
2: I don't. Um, I've seen... I've, I've ridden with people who have had the GoPros and stuff, and they've sent me the footage. And even the footage that I'm in, I find kind of boring. I mean, it's just riding along a road. And and I don't... Uh, it's, it's just more batteries to charge. If I've got any talent at all, it's in written word, and that's how I recalled my trips. And so... I'm not knocking it. That's fine if you like it. But I don't think even if I was to record it, I'd have the time or the skill when I'm back home to sit in front of the computer screen and edit it to a size that was interesting. So I leave the GoPros to other people. I I, I enjoy my photography and enjoy my written word. And that's how I record my trips.
0: When you're doing your diary entries, do you do those daily? Is Is it something you do before you go to bed or when you get up in the morning?
2: Um, used to be before I went to bed, but then I worked nights for seven years and I'd get home knackered. So it became a morning thing and it stayed a morning thing. I also think that um, over the night you process the day that was subconsciously. And so it's quite easy to write it in the morning. So uh, yeah, so the, the diary writing is for me is a, a first thing in the morning.
0: When you have a boring day where nothing happens, what do you write in your diary?
2: Ah, that's the real challenge, you see, and I think that's probably what helps me. There's every every day has an entry, uh, a, a heading, uh, I should say. And uh, there was one miserable February day when it barely gets light and it was just grey and damp. And the only thing I had to do that day was to go down to the grocery store and uh, and pick up my weekly shopping. And what do you write about a day like that? It's just a bloody miserable day. And the heading was. They've changed the aisle for the hummus. (laughs)
0: <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. I can't believe it. You know, the, the great thing about it, you know, in the future when somebody goes, I mean, after your long turn to dust, somebody can go back and they can find that and say, this is when they change the aisle for the hummus. That is fantastic. <laughs> Graham, I would love to do something with you right now, and it's going to be up to you whether you want to or not. I would love to have you go grab one of those old diaries, flip to a random page and read us a, an entry.
2: Okay then, now let, let me go, let don't, me go don't open choose, a fireproof
0: box. Don't choose one because you know it's good. Random, just do a random one.
2: We'll do it, but I reserve the right to censor it. Okay. <laughs> let me, give me give me a minute okay, to go, go uh, ahead. open a fireproof box and dig the dust out.
0: Can we hear the sounds of you opening that fireproof box? Can you put the microphone near it?
2: Uh, it's not going to creak, but I'll bring it in so you can hear it. Okay. okay sound of me putting heavy fireproof box on table right finding key for heavy fireproof box No sound of me putting on glasses so i can see key uh right um, i don't know what key it is and i've got a bunch of them here so you're gonna to bear with me i've chosen the box which has the diaries from 97 to 04 um, because if we go back too early, it's just kind of irrelevant. Ooh, there's all sorts of stuff in here. Right, here's 99, 2002. You want to pick a year between those years I've told you? 99. 99, okay, so it's on the top here. Right, okay. You pick a day and a date, and I'll see. If it's any well, interest whatsoever. Let's,
0: let's go to August 7th, 1999. Okay, that's exactly a year, exactly
2: uh, August the 7th. Oh! Vic's wedding. (laughs) You've got a good day. Uh, Okay, well, there's mundane shit in here. Um, So Vic was actually my ex-girlfriend, who I don't have anymore, who did the first trip when we did the round the World trip. Um, So that was the day she got married. Um, So, God, I mean, nothing spectacular because it's just wedding stuff. But um, I do remember something that happens, and I'll try and find that entry down here. Um, (laughs) Yeah, see? (laughs) (laughs) I got a sense of some of this stuff (laughs) because it was a white wedding. There was a lot of partying. So, right, food was ready, wasn't exactly hungry. Uh, The soup was great, so were the meats, Um, but I was full, kind of. Um, The speakers were dull except from uh, Ozzy's, which was uh, was touching. And then I caught the bouquet. It came flying right at me. I couldn't avoid it. After that, I uh, just decided to drink and uh, and uh, but i didn't eat lady asked me if i wanted to put my flowers in if she want if uh, she could put my flowers in water um and then went back to the van so yeah i mean the thing is i obviously don't write my um i don't write my books directly like that. the my the diary jogs my mind so it's funny
0: as you're reading and you read the, the meat was served and it was good <laughs> I'm thinking that's just, that's just unbelievably detailed, but I'm sure it jogs your memory. I mean, I think that's, that's just amazing. So now if we can do the same thing, but let's go to a time when you're on the road traveling with your motorcycle. As a matter of fact, since the book is based on your diary, why don't you read a passage directly from the book?
2: Okay. Oh, God, I didn't know I was going to be doing a reading. Hang on. Um, so let me find a die. Luckily, I have a book right here. Uh, Okay, so this is um, day 63 of the trip, uh, 20 kilometres away from a place called Tsan I couldn't read it, uh, in Mongolia. Um, When the red dawn arrives, both bike and tent are still standing. Once again, horses Miranda through the camping area, grazing uh, for their breakfast feed. The dramatic sunrise and passing wildlife make me grab a camera before I grab my tools. I have the morning to myself and I want to keep it that way. I move my bike away from the tents, spread out my poncho, and quietly, and methodically, start to take off what I need to get to the wiring. I should say at this point the bike had broken down; I'd had an uh, electrical fault the night before. So anyway, uh, strange I should favour the middle of a barren step over the town to work on my bike, but I've never worked well with someone else looking over my shoulder. I replace a blown fuse. I replace the fuse I blew last night and have power again. I get down to the starter button connections. I bypass them, and the bike fires up. I may not know my bike inside out, but I know me. And I know when I work at my best, refreshed and alone, electrical faults require thought before they require tools. However, my celebration is premature. So, uh, yeah, it was an electrical fault I had in the middle of the Kazakhstan, in the Mongolian steppe, and I had to try and fix the bike.
0: When you have a problem like that when you're on the road, do you find it stressful or do you just go about it as just another task of the day?
2: Um, well, yeah, it's stressful. I think um, it's, it's sometimes quite hard to keep problems in perspective, um, particularly when you're on your own. If you're with other people, you can banter back and forth with those issues and you can come up with solutions. When you're on your own, these uh, problems can sort of have end of trip connotations. So it is it is a bit difficult uh, sometimes and you do feel um it is hard to keep proportion and perspective on what these problems are. Uh, I'm getting better at it because I know now that it's never the end of the world. There is always options. For example, last year I was in Albania and I was completely out there. There were no roads. It was horrendous. My map was wrong. And so I was trying to find a road in a place in the country where there simply wasn't one. And I kept dropping the bike. I kept ending up in... Bogs and dead ends and, and rivers that were uncrossable and boulder-strewn, uh, dry riverbeds. And it was just, it was impossible. Anyway, on, a, on the last, well, I dropped the bike really badly, um, where it was almost impossible to get up. And apart from it laying on its side and pissing out fuel, I'd also snapped off the front brake, um, brake the brake lever. Now, the back brake had not been working for some time, and now there was absolutely just a stub of a front brake lever I could barely put my finger on. And that was it. Albania had just beaten me. Um, and so I hopped back to the border of Montenegro to these customs offices. I'd seen three hours before as I'd entered the country. And I'm just drenched in sweat. I'm <laughs> just like, your country's beaten me. I just can't do this. And so I had to go back into the country i just left. Um, again, with no front brake, to this little town, and there's sort of this mafia, 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 mafia guy so saying, "Oh, it's okay. Don't worry about it. We'll fix it for you." And I'm trying, to figure, how the hell am I going to fix this? It's uh, The KLR brake lever is not that standard of a brake lever. And I used to carry spare levers with me. But now I've got bark bashes on the bike. I thought, ah, oh, I don't need to carry levers. But the bark bash had bent so much, it snapped off the lever. So things like that can have make you think, oh, god, what am I going to do, wait for DHL for a week? you know? How the hell am I going to get out of this situation? And the next morning, um, I went back to it fresh. And I clamped a pair of mole grips, vice grips, onto the lever and the little ones, and they just snapped on and they were perfect. I mean, they were ergonomically perfect. It's like putting your last coin into a slot machine and it coming up with a jackpot. I knew that this was going to work. My trip was not over. And I still keep those vice grips on there now because they look so cool and they work so well. So it's a good thing about keeping things in perspective, you know.
0: How do you feel about traveling alone versus traveling in groups?
2: Um, for me, I prefer it. I mean, you meet people on the road, and I've met people who I've traveled with for sometimes up to two weeks. Uh, then again, occasionally you might just meet someone who's good for an evening meal. Um, I don't really do commitment that well, so I I wouldn't want to leave with a group of people who I knew I had to stay with because they'll. They're, they're, occasionally the chemistry is perfect, but more often than not, um, you're not necessarily compatible, and I know that I'm i i am okay on my own, so I don't have to put up with situations which cause friction or frustration or aggression. Uh, the other great thing, I think, about being on your own is you're far more open to meeting local people. Even if you're with one other person at a table in a restaurant – there's absolutely no need for anybody else to approach you. You've got company and you're not really open to it. But if I sit on my own in a restaurant um, and I don't stare at my phone or a laptop and I'm open and receptive to other people, more often than not, someone will come, ask me to join them or just sort of make some conversation. And that's when you get invites to homestays. That's when you get told about little places that aren't in the guidebooks. And uh And that's when you discover the real country, I think, when you talk to the local people. So I think it is harder going on your own, definitely. But ultimately, I think it's more rewarding.
0: Can you give us a quick rundown on your bike and the mods? And I'm sort of talking generally here, whether it be your KLR or your Yamaha. What sort of mods do you like to do to your bike and and how does that work out?
2: Uh, Okay, well, we were talking earlier about um, the accessories. I think some things that are essential are a good sump guard. Um, because you're going to hit rocks and uh, you don't want to puncture your engine cases. Um, so I would definitely get a good sump guard. Heated grips, I think, are crucial. And um, I recently discovered the Airhawk seat, which made a huge difference if you're doing high-mileage days. So there's some of the, and, and I also put a bit of sheepskin over that. So um, so you've got, you've got comfort on the bottom on your own bottom and, and, and protection on the bottom of your bike. I think they're quite important. Um, as far as other mods, like I said, I cover up the headlights, so it's not going to um, smash from from rocks. Um, I have a, a Scott oiler to oil my chain, um, although I always leave with new chain and sprockets um, because you're going to probably get 15,000 miles out of a chain and sprocket, but I try and keep it lubed anyway. Um, other than that, you know, you can sometimes – just agonise over what spare parts you will need. I mean, cables, yes, because they don't take up much room and uh, and they are prone to snapping throttle cables, clutch cables, etc. Um, obviously, punch repair kit and stuff like that. But trying to figure out everything that could possibly go wrong, and, and you will never do that. And I had a breakdown in Mongolia and uh, back brake got seized on and I hadn't realised by the time I did, if it had been night, that back uh, rotor would have been absolutely glowing. And what happened was I melted the seals in my rear caliper. Well, it doesn't matter how much of an ingenuity a race have, they can't manufacture a, a rubber seal that goes around the piston. So I had no option but to order one from the UK and wait a week for it to arrive. Um, which, as a lot of people say, it's not a secret, that that is the adventure. When something happens, which is unexpected, when you suddenly find yourself staying pot in a little town that you would never even have dreamt of putting your feet down in. Um, you become a local, you go to the local veg shops every morning, you get your food, you get to see how the place functions on a day-to-day basis, and you come away at the end of that week with your new brake caliper and also a really good understanding of how that little village works. And uh, it's not necessarily convenient, but it's also, it, it's probably one of the most memorable parts of the journey when the journey's over.
0: Tell us the names of your books.
2: Yeah. Um, the first one was called In Search of Greener Grass. And the second one is called Eureka, which is spelt with a U, which um, which was very uh, poignant because the trip had a U-turn. And that's when I found the line between desire and contentment, but was also rather short sighted because instead of calling the book Eureka, I tend to call it Eureka spelt with a U. <laughs>
0: Maybe that should have been the title, Eureka, spelled with a U. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Live and learn, don't you?
0: (laughs) What do you have for favorite books, Graham?
2: Uh, Well, I've got two, actually. Um, My all-time favorite Overland Motorcycle book would be One Man Caravan by Robert Fulcrum Jr. And the reason is he did that trip in the 1930s. And he was an American who started on a bike in England to ride back to America through the Middle East. And it was such a different world back then. And he talks about the war, because back then there was only one. When he talks about the 70s, he's talking about the 1870s, not the 1970s. And so he travels through a world which we will never see. And um, that, for me, is probably my all-time favourite motorcycle book um, but as far as more modern one goes there's a guy called Dan Walsh who's an English he was a journalist and he wrote a book called uh, these are the days that must happen to you and that was a trip that he did through the Americas and I love his format of writing. He's, he's also quite blatant and honest, but he's also very informed politically, has a huge social conscience, and, uh, and he also has the advantage of being able to speak Spanish. So he does have a lot of interaction with the people he goes through. So yeah, I would say those were my two favorite books.
0: I've been speaking with Graham Field, and you can visit his website. Check our show notes for a link to his website. You can visit his website, grahamfield.co.uk. And Graham, where's the best place to find your books?
2: Uh, In the UK there, paperback and Kindle. In North America, you can buy the first one, insert your greener grass in paperback, but you can only get the new one you recut on Kindle format. Um, So uh, because of logistics and everything else. Um, Alternatively, if you go to my website, which is grahamfield.co.uk, from there you can order any of the books and you can get them signed and delivered anywhere in the world so uh, it's uh, anything's available anywhere
0: thank you graham till next time
2: really good questions by the way i'm really impressed it wasn't just the normal what's your scariest moment what's your not favorite country really good thoughtful questions i really appreciate that
0: (laughs) and that was graham field from the adventure rider radio archives back in august 2014 I just want to remind you that this episode was made possible for you today in part by Max BMW Motorcycles at www.maxbmw.com, Best Rest Products at www.cyclepump.com, Green Chili Adventure Gear at www.greenchiliadv.com, and Motobreeze Chain Oilers, www.motobreeze.com. Well, that about wraps up another episode of Adventure Rider Radio, and we sure hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as we did making it. Special thanks to our producer, Elizabeth Martin, and to you, of course, the listener. Thank you very much for listening. Don't forget to drop by our website. You can download all of our episodes for free, www.adventureriderradio.com. And you can also look at our Raw show, which is our separate show from this. You need to subscribe separately. All at that website. And if you go to the website and look at the show notes for each individual show, you'll often find some things in there that you, you wouldn't have heard on the show, maybe some photographs and things like that so drop by check out the show notes for each episode you can also like us on Facebook just simply search for Adventure Rider Radio if you like what we're doing and you want to help support we get all kinds of incentive anything $10 or more is going to get you a sticker sent back at you anything $50 or more will get you a mention on our Raw show that's the other show I told you about if you don't know about it already anyway drop by the website www.adventureriderradio.com and click on the support button thank you very much my name is Jim Martin now it's time to get out there and ride your bike see you next week
2: Lynn Williams and Alan Curtis. And you're listening to Adventure Rider Radio. <laughs>